Welcome back to Catholic Doctrine Bible Study. This is session 47. I'm your host, Jim Hawk. And in this session, we're going to finish up on John chapter 2, the wedding of Cana, where Jesus inaugurates his ministry uh, through Mary's direction to do so and creates wine from water. Uh, a couple of things I left out in our last session. Chapter 2 begins with saying, on the third day, this was when the wedding was. So what else do we know about the third day? Uh, the third day, on the third day, Christ rose from the dead after being in the grave for uh, parts of three days, right? So Jesus begins the process of resurrecting us with this, his first miracle, as described in the Gospel of John. Okay, so uh, also you might have a little problem with verse 4 after Jesus says, hey, they don't have any wine. Um, Jesus said to her, woman, how does your concern affect me? So that might all seem a little rude, calling her woman, right? Well, don't despair. Jesus isn't being rude. Uh, first of all, Jesus was a, an obedient Jew. One of the commandments was to honor your mother and father. He certainly does that. But also the term woman, well, if you were to call your own mother woman, you might get a, a, a sharp uh, punishment for that. But um, of course, uh, in Jesus' time, it could be a, a term of respect. And also, where else do we see a reference to woman, to that use of the word? Well, of course, in the Genesis story, um, God, in speaking with Satan, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He doesn't call the woman Eve. He calls her woman. And uh, between her, you know, descendants and, and you. And, of course, one of those descendants would be uh, Christ himself. We see, we see that Mary is kind of the new Eve, so to speak, in the sense that uh, Eve's saying no to God is replaced in the new covenant by Mary saying yes to God. You know, let it be done to me according to your will in terms of the birth of Jesus. So we don't get too troubled at his use of the term woman. Where else do we see woman? Well, in Revelation chapter 12, at the beginning, we see the woman is closed with, clothed rather, with uh, 12 stars uh, on a crown. And uh, that is, of course, a reference to Mary as well. So don't get too, uh, too bugged about this. Now, in the interest of time, I won't read this to you, but we know the rest of the story, Jesus turns the water into wine, a good quantity of wine, and also the best wine. So Jesus has the best in mind for us. He doesn't, he's not cheap with us. He has, has the best for us. And it says um, that Jesus did this at the beginning of his, in, in verse 11, Jesus did this at the beginning of his signs in Cana in Galilee, and so revealed his glory, and his disciples began to believe in him. So this was the first of seven signs 
Um, and in it, we see Jesus has the power to create. Okay, just like creation took seven days at the beginning of, of Genesis, we see that this is the first of seven signs. Seven is the number of completion, and you're going to be tired of hearing references to sevens and threes and and forties, etc. in John's Gospel, because I told you it's going to be very um, symbolic. Everything is going to have more than one meaning. So you may want to write in your margins. This is the first of seven signs, so pointing towards Jesus' divinity, and it shows us that his power to create. It also brings to mind uh, Moses' first miracle, if you will, when he's trying to have Pharaoh set, let his people go. What was Moses' first miracle? He also turned water into something. Moses turned it into, if you recall the story, blood. Well, here Jesus is turning water into wine. Moses' story, by the way, if you want to look it up, it's in Moses, excuse me, it's in Exodus chapter 7, verse 20. Okay, so we see the first of Jesus' signs um, where Jesus turns water into wine. Kind of reminds me of a little story about a guy who uh, was a severe alcoholic. Uh, he was basically homeless. He spent all of his money on alcohol and he'd hang around with friends and uh, they would drink together when they had a dollar or two. Well, uh, at some point, the man decided that he would turn his life over to Christ. And in doing so, he followed him. He didn't just believe in Christ. He changed his life uh, to, to, be, to walk with Christ. And so he gave up alcohol. Well, he ran into one of his alcoholic friends and uh, friends said, hey, I got a bottle. Let's drink it. And together. And uh, the man said, uh, no, you know, I'm following a different path now. I've, I've become a Christian. And his alcoholic friend looked at him skeptically and said, so I guess you believe that Jesus was able to turn water into wine. And uh, the man said, not only do I believe that, but the evidence of that in my life is that he was able to turn beer into furniture you know, because he was uh, not spending all of his money and uh, not wasting all of his money on uh, on alcohol. Anyway, okay, we'll move on to uh, the story of the cleansing of the temple. Now, a skeptic is going to say, hey, how come in the other gospels, Jesus cleanses the temple at the end of his ministry, near the end of his ministry, and in John's gospel, he cleanses it at the beginning of his ministry and his first trip to uh, Jerusalem. There are three in uh, John during Jesus' uh, ministry of trips to Jerusalem. Well, as we said before, John is not too concerned with chronology of things. He's putting things perhaps in order of, of um, importance, if you will. Um, and so he cleanses the temple. Why? Because uh, it's his house. You know, you have a right to clean house, your own house. We talked more about this when we studied, uh, why is this not a sin, by the way, for Jesus to 
you know, uh, drive out everybody and uh, fashion a whipcord and driving out the people of the temple area. If you did that in church, it'd be a sin. We talk more about that in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 and 13, when we studied that. So we'll go into a little more depth back there if you want to uh, go back there. But uh, at any rate, so um, he's, he quotes scripture in verse 17. His disciples recalled the words of scripture, zeal for your house will consume me. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, and that's from Psalm 69, verse 10. That's a Psalm of David. So Jesus is showing zeal for his house. And um, the, the Jews answered and said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? This is still in chapter 2, verse 18. And then in verse 19, Jesus answered and said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. Now, Jesus doesn't say he's going to destroy the temple. He says, if the temple is destroyed, he will raise it in three days. So I want you to circle three days there, because once again, what else happens in three days? Three days after Christ dies, he is resurrected. So more symbolism there. And the temple itself is symbolism, right? And Jesus um, um, delves into that a bit, because the temple, another word for temple, is sanctuary. The temple will be destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. That is a historical fact about 40 years after the death of Christ. 40 is also one of those numbers you're going to get sick of. 40 is a time of preparation, a time of trial, a time of testing. And of course, after Christ dies in the 40 years that uh, are subsequent to it, uh, the the new church will certainly be tested. Will uh, there will certainly be trials as the new church uh, takes takes its its form. So uh, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. So Jesus <clears throat> is saying the old sanctuary that will ultimately be destroyed, a building, is being replaced here by me. I'm the new sanctuary. I want you to come and dwell in me and dwell with me. Um, and so that is the call of the new covenant there. Now, of course, his followers don't, don't understand this. And uh, so it says in verse 22, Therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they came to believe the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. So at the time he's saying this, you know, they don't get it, but they don't have a full understanding of who Christ is and a full commitment to who Christ is until after they see the resurrected Christ. Uh, and then they look back and they're comparing their own recollections of Jesus and they say, oh yeah, he said he was going to do that. Uh, I will, you know, on the third day, you know, I am the new temple. I am the new sanctuary. You can destroy a building, but you can't destroy me. Okay. So, um, and that brings us to the beginning of chapter three. By the way, maybe I should step back a little bit. The people were skeptical 
um, when Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said in verse 20, this temple has been under construction for 46 years. Okay, so a little, little history here for you history buffs. Josephus, who um, was born in about the 30s, 80s, he was a Jewish historian, not a Christian, never became a Christian. Okay, but he's writing about things going on in the history of the Jews. And he, um, he says that the project, you know, this 46-year project began by Herod in about 19 BC. So 46 years later brings us to 27 AD when this statement uh, allegedly took place. So Jesus' ministry just started here. And it lasts three years, so that takes us to circa 30 A.D. And what happened 40 years after that? The temple is destroyed. So a little math, little little history there. Okay. Again, the the symbol or the number 40 is uh, symbolic in nature. Well, let's touch on uh, the beginning of chapter three, where we're introduced to Nicodemus. Now there was a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees, you know, the studiers of the law and interpreters of the law, etc. And so many of them were, of course, antithetical towards uh, Jesus. You know, they were enemies of Jesus. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus, that word means conqueror of the, uh, of the people there. And so he's a, apparently a pretty, pretty influential guy. He's a ruler of the Jews. Not the ruler, but a ruler. He's of some authority. He came to Jesus at night. Why does, why does John put that in there? Well, perhaps Nicodemus, you know, night is, is uh, analogous to darkness, right? And John uses darkness and light uh, frequently as metaphors for lack of knowledge or complete knowledge, etc. Uh, it is thought that perhaps... Nicodemus initially may have even been spying on Jesus as kind of a representative of the Pharisees to see if he could get some dirt. Ultimately, we know that Nicodemus turns his life over to Jesus, and uh, we see that in chapter 7, uh, he becomes a convert, and in chapter 19, you know, he actually even, uh, you know, is in, is involved in the the, uh, uh, the taking of the body for, for Jesus. So uh, he says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher. So at this point, Nicodemus just thinks, okay, Jesus is another teacher, and there's lots of teachers, right? Who has come from God, for no one could do these signs that you are doing unless God is with him. So does he really believe that at this point, or is he just flattering Jesus because he's spying on him? We don't know, okay? But clearly, as we shall see, Nicodemus at this point doesn't have a full grasp of who Jesus is. Well, nobody does at this point. Jesus answered and said to him, Amen, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. So, you know, born, you know, on earth and then being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, how can a person once grown old be born again? Surely he cannot re-enter his mother's womb and be born again, can he? Let's stop right there. So uh, perhaps you've had encounters with Protestants who will ask you point blank, 
Are you born again? Well, that's what they're. This is what they're referring to. In other words, have you had a life-changing experience since um, getting to know Jesus? My my hope is that you can answer yes. I was born again. As Catholics, we can even take it a step further. We believe that you are born again in a sense of the word when you are baptized. Okay. And what does Jesus say to you, uh, say about baptism? Um, Jesus answered, amen, amen, double amen. So it must be important. I say to you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit, capital S. Okay. So what does that mean to us? That Jesus is saying here and in other places as well, you must be baptized at the end of, of uh, the Gospel of Matthew. We saw where Jesus said, go forth and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He didn't say, go forth and you know write books. Happily, some did. But uh, baptism is important. In other words, our actions must follow our intellectual understanding of who Jesus is. If you know you're supposed to be baptized and you don't do it, well, Shame on you for that. Um, uh, you know, here you have it very, very clean, very clearly. Jesus says you must be born of water and spirit. So uh, baptism is important. I think we'll pick up more on that uh, next time as we uh, delve into uh, baptism and uh, etc. So I think we're about out of time for now, um, but uh, let us pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, Lord, again, thank you for uh, the miracles that you do, not only the wedding of Cana, but the miracle of life that we seem to take for granted so much. Um, the, all of the miracles, the miracles of creation. And we ask that you create a new in us, a new person in us who will walk with you, who will, in fact, to use Protestant terminology, be born again so that we can, uh, can walk with you. Help our skepticism. Help us recognize the efficacy of the sacraments that you've provided here where Jesus is talking about being baptized with water and the Spirit. In other words, um, help us to recognize the uh, significance of the outward sign of water baptism being connected with the inner conversion of, of us as we seek to walk in the Holy Spirit. Um, we ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So be with us next time on Catholic Doctrine Bible Study.